This podcast is brought to you by the Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Your host is editor Mike King, and this episode is kindly supported by Fordo. Shipping products as easy as sending emails. In this overly ambitious episode of the Lodestar podcast, we'll be sweeping the length of global supply chains from power cuts and factory shutdowns in China across the Trans-Pacific where logistics networks are straining with final holiday season deliveries and pressure is mounting on the last mile. Then we'll be jumping to Europe where we'll be hearing how terminal operators are coping with liner scheduling disarray or not as the case may be. Joining me, may guiding me on this voyage of discovery are in Asia, Maersk MD for China, Caroline Wu, the Lodestar's Asia correspondent, Sam Whelan. In the States, we have the fantastic Cathy Roberson and Seco Logistic Brian Borg. And in Europe, who better than the Port of Rotterdam's Director of Containers, Hans Nachtigall. The challenges are starting from the terminals and now rippling down to the hinterland. And obviously, that is creating a whole supply chain challenge. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Yes, you heard it. We're pushing the boundaries on this episode. And just so you know, I'm not kidding. I'm not only joined by two co-hosts today, but defying time zones. They are also on opposite sides of the world. Modern technology, hey? So we have Lodestar Asia correspondent Sam Whelan, who is desperately hoping he might be able to escape his two-year Southeast Asia COVID lockdown at some point soon so he can visit his family in the UK. Hello, Sam. Hello, Mike. Good to be here. Yeah, still uh, got my fingers crossed I can get back to the UK early next year. And on the other side of the Trans-Pacific, in fact, she's nearer the Atlantic. This is someone you'll all know. She's a mainstay of all things logistics. She's the queen of supply chain webinars, the diva of the last mile, a favorite former colleague of mine, and one of the most recognizable voices in freight. From her Georgia retreat, we have Kathy Roberson, president of Logistics Trends and Insights. Hello, Kathy. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm good. Kathy, I, I hope I didn't overherald you in any way there. Oh, no. Well, I think get my crown straight here. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be coming to Sam when we turn to Asia in a moment. But first, Kathy, you've been looking at a lot of the third quarter financials. What are manufacturers and retailers saying about how supply chain costs are hitting bottom lines? Oh, my gosh. So the earnings transcripts, it has been absolutely crazy. Yes, the supply chain costs have been hitting the overall revenues, the gross margins of many of these companies. Primarily because of, you know, the higher freight cost, the shortages of raw material and so on and so forth. But on the flip side, for a lot of these larger retailers in particular, yeah, the gross margins may have been hit, but the profits have been pretty decent, mainly because they're not doing as many promotions. Uh, They're not marking down their inventories like they have in the past, you know, pre-COVID and such, because inventories are so lean. It's been really interesting to watch. It's almost a story of haves and have-nots. The larger retailers, they're bringing in a lot more inventory, two to three months, four months, well in advance of when they're needing it. And because of their higher volumes, they're able to secure a lot of this capacity that they need at 
better prices and I put better prices and quotes because the better prices stink for everyone, to be honest with you. And that gives them a competitive advantage against smaller shippers then. I think it does, definitely. Um, some of the medium size, not quite as large retailers, such as the Walmarts and the Targets, these are more like the Gap, Nike, and, and Nordstrom's. They stumbled in their latest earnings because of the inability to get that freight in for the holiday season. And also Nike and the Gap in particular, a lot of their sourcing came from Vietnam and Vietnam is slowly recovering from like a two-month shutdown and they're they're greatly behind. It's very variable market in terms of order times for parts and products. Are you seeing shortages anywhere of key inputs for production lines or maybe empty shelves? Who's getting hit? I mean, really, everyone's getting hit. I, I, I walk the stores over the holiday weekend. There are empty gaps on the shelves. But when you look at it, the biggest uh, shortage are in the semiconductor area. So think about it. Cars. You want to buy someone an automobile for the holiday season. You may not be able to find exactly what you want. Really, these semiconductors impact every single industry. You know, the Fitbits, the wearables, furniture even, have been impacted by the lack of these sensors or semiconductors. And it all goes back to that, the manufacturing of them, not having enough. And then they're sitting at the port, those that are able to get in. So it's messy. And then the raw materials themselves. Earlier in COVID, we saw shortages of foam for furniture. That caused backups because all of a sudden, all these manufacturers and suppliers were receiving all these orders all at the same time. Now, of course, so much of what us consumers in Europe, North America, and everywhere else rely on is shipped from China. So, Sam, we're going to hear from MersMD for Greater China about what is happening there shortly, especially how COVID outbreaks and electricity shortages are affecting those order times. But first, let's have an update on what's been happening on those front all trades out of Asia into Europe and the US. Yeah, so we've seen a bit of a, um, a drop on the Trans-Pacific mics in terms of the Baltic index earlier this month, definitely heading into sort of uh, a slack season for um, container sh shipping. I think most of the uh, Christmas presents had already been uh, shipped. So we're getting into that sort of traditional lull. With that said, there's still the big problems at LA Long Beach and about 80 ships you know, waiting at anchor and that's causing capacity issues with the shipping lines, perhaps not being able to add as much capacity as they would like. So the most recent um, data we have on the Baltic index was an increase of 4% I think last week from the US West Coast to about $14,400. So that's $14,400 just as we're coming to the end of November. So that's down from around about 20,000 in terms of spot freight rates on those baskets out of Asia. So just on that Asia-Europe shipping route, shippers and carriers are entering annual contract negotiations around about now. What's been happening there? Yeah, again, I think we've seen the, the spot rates slide a little bit on Asia to Europe. Um, the Mopestar has seen some rates around $30,000 for a 40-foot from Yantian to Felixstowe. But I've spoken with a, a Singapore-based cargo owner only recently, and he said the carriers are very much trying to get their biggest customers into long-term contracts. They want to lock them in now because they know, you know, the, 
the party's probably not going to last forever, so they want to short things up a little bit. Turning to ASM, I'm looking at the Baltic Air Freight Index, and we're still seeing rates out of Shanghai and Hong Kong around about the record levels hit during the PPE crisis during the second quarter of 2020. Now, of course, we're still in the very end part of that peak season for demand on air freight. And there's obviously, there's not a lot of belly hole capacity around, but carriers are doing their best to make up for loss of passenger revenue by cashing in on freight. Some of them are being caught out by COVID lockdowns, though, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen disruption, I think, in China throughout the year because of some of these sort of very harsh quarantine rules that are inf- affecting pilots, crew, handling staff. And then most recently with um, Cathay Pacific have fallen victims, Hong Kong's strict zero COVID policy. They had three pilots, three cargo pilots flying back from Frankfurt who tested positive. And that triggered basically a sort of a mass quarantine of over a hundred pilots and staff in Hong Kong. They had to go to quarantine camps. Those three pilots apparently broke the layover rules and were promptly fired. So morale is pretty, pretty low. They're struggling to get enough pilots and staff for the um, passenger flights over Christmas. And just to give you an idea of the impact on cargo as well, we've seen FedEx in the last week actually decide to close down their Hong Kong pilot base and move it to California. So it's making it very difficult to run flights, basically, even for cargo. It's definitely one to watch, especially Hong Kong, because it's had those very strict COVID policies throughout the pandemic. But I did see that that might be one of the places where this new variant out of Southern Africa has actually reached already. So possibly things could get even stricter. But anyway, thanks, Sam. That's probably a great point to jump off and speak to a company that has been investing in its own air freight capacity of late. Direct from Shanghai, I'm delighted to say we have Maersk's Managing Director for Greater China, Caroline Wu. Thank you very much for joining us on the Lodestar podcast. Hello, Mike. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. Caroline, in recent months in China, we've seen localized power cuts to reduce emissions. We've also seen strict lockdowns to prevent COVID outbreaks, which, of course, has implications for labor availability and logistics. We also still have border closures. Now, there were reports suggesting that all of this might have affected output from factories and possibly even port throughput volumes. So what's the situation in China now? How have manufacturers and their supply chains been impacted by these various factors? Yes, um, the power control has been a very hot topic over the past two months. The key manufacturing areas in China, including the Guangdong and the Jiangsu and the Zhejiang province, have been affected by the electricity rationing. 20 provinces in China has been impacted to different degrees. The power shortage has been caused by several factors, including the high coal price, the unpredictable weather patterns, and the introduction of the tougher energy and emissions. Actually, in fact, China has increased the coal production and some of the restrictions eased in earlier November. So the impact on productions and China exports due to the power restrictions, is expected to be minor now. However, there's a significant order backlog from China, so the container industry remains capacity constrained because port congestions and landside bottlenecks reduced the amount of available vessels and the capacity. And how exactly has MERS been mitigating these various supply chain blockages? And what is the situation at China's leading ports and airports at the moment? 
particularly in terms of their ability to operate at full capacity or optimum productivity? So for airport in China, they are indeed experiencing an unprecedented challenges operating in the current environment, simply due to the congestions, the new regulation introduced and the labor shortages. This actually has triggered a clear trend among the airlines and forwarders to shift the capacity to smaller and the regional airports to avoid some of the congestions and the productivity issues at the traditional airport hubs. Maersk has been adding air capacity as one part of our solution to supply customers' needs. We also put a lot of efforts in the ground handling resource planning and coordination with the airport to make sure our customers' cargo are handled effectively in the airport terminals and the capacity is well utilized. In addition to our existing charter program, we will have both Star Air incoming capacity in 2022, so next year, and the Senator, as you might have heard from the news, where we are waiting for approval from the regulators to close the deal. This will add significant capacity to both our existing and the new trade lands. So this is the airport part. Talking about the, the container shipping site, again, port congestions, lower productivities, disrupted selling schedules continue to have disruption to the customer supply chain. However, I would see the situation improved in the recent months. Currently, the average waiting time in the Chinese coastal port is below seven days. These are causing containers still remain in the port or in transit for longer time and causing human shortage as well. So in Musk, we have taken various measures in optimizing our vessel schedules and repositioning all the empty containers as much as possible back to Asia for export use. So Caroline, you mentioned there that there's up to seven day delays at some of the, the leading ports. Which ports are those delays worst? And are you doing anything, say, into European markets, perhaps? Maybe you're using railway services to help out these customers to avoid some of these delays at sea? Yeah, currently at this moment, the biggest yacht density is in Dalian, where I think almost half of the China import refer shipments is going through that gateway. Apart from that, other ports is doing relatively okay job. And there are some continuous inspections. There are some, you know, continuous checkings, getting through the terminals. But overall, I would see the port congestion in China is relatively okay compared with the U.S. West Coast and compared with North Europe. Railway is more efficient tool of keeping the cargo moving between China and the rest of the world because in China, the domestic rail has a real good connection to the intercontinental rail. So no matter which port in the coastal side, you can always find a way of connecting the domestic rail network to the intercontinental rail network. Uh, and your customers are finding this rail solution attractive, are they? I think they, they do find that um, the rail solution is higher speed to market and, and lower cost compared with air freight. Particularly now, the air freight has a big challenge and capacity shortage. So the customer who really desperate to get cargo out of China, they have to find an alternative way than air freight and ocean freight. You mentioned earlier that those efforts to cut down on emissions that were causing problems with electricity supply for some ma manufacturers, they've eased slightly in November. Now, looking forward to next year, we've got the Beijing Winter Olympics in February. Now, if, if, you, if I may cast you back slightly in time, before the 2008 Summer Games, also in Beijing, we saw stringent efforts to cut emissions. 
how are you planning around the potential that that might happen again, that come next February, when we also have Chinese New Year, there may be efforts to cut down on emissions. There might be, maybe there's less electricity available for your manufacturers. What does this mean for how you plan ahead? Are you expecting, for example, an earlier surge in demand for exports than usual from international markets? An earlier Chinese New Year, so to speak. Yes, the Beijing Winter Olympics uh, in next February is falling into the Chinese New Year holiday, exactly. However, we are at this stage not expecting this to have a significant impact in what we continue to see as a strong market getting into Q1 next year. We actually, in March, have kicked off our Chinese New Year peak season preparation. So far, based on the marketing intelligence, it looks customers and factories in North China would expect earlier and longer closure of the factories, combining the two uh, events. Overall, we still expect a strong Chinese New Year peak with a normal curve. But as you know, the market remains highly volatile and unpredictable these days, so we have to see how it develops. We also, at the same time, will use the relatively quiet period of Chinese New Year holiday to fix some of the bottlenecks in the network. So when demand starts to recover post-Chinese New Year holiday, we hope we can help our customer with more on-time couple deliveries. Caroline, thanks so much once more for joining us and all the best for 2022. Thank you, Mike. All the best to you and take care and stay safe. So Sam, I know you're talking to market contacts all the time. Are they expecting Chinese New Year to, to start unkinking the Asia end of that freight market, particularly on the shipping side? I think there's always a hope, Mike, that that sort of lull after the rush over Chinese New Year might give carriers a bit of a respite and a chance to get their schedules back on track. But I think the problem is that everybody recognizes these ongoing risk factors in this sort of new age of COVID, especially in China with the harsh restrictions and now also the power shortages that the market can change very, very quickly. Kathy, are you optimistic that we might see a major improvement in trade flows early next year? To answer quite shortly, no. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, we might see some slight improvements, but I think it's going to be kind of an up and down all through next year. A lot of retailers brought in uh, a lot of the uh, inventory that they needed for the holiday season and also what they would need later into the first quarter of next year, very early. However, that's going to create a lot of need because here in the U.S., retail sales are still growing. I mean, double digits. I think October was a 10% growth in retail sales. And it's crazy because I think a lot of this inventory demand is coming from not only the stores, because we're all going back to the stores now because a number of us have been vaccinated and all of that. But at the same time, this inventory is going to support their online websites as well. So they're needing more inventory, but they can't keep up. So as a result, any type of short-term recovery, yeah, it's not going to happen. You know, we're still down the air capacity that we, we desperately need. The, the backups at the ports are still there. They may have seen some improvement over the past couple of weeks or so, but they're still backed up and it's a domino effect. So it's impacting the entire supply chain. You back up at the port, you're going to back up with the trucks, the rail, warehousing, all the way down to the last mile. 
I think you make a good point there, Kathy. The Trans-Pacific market, that link between U.S. consumer behavior and the ability of Asia to supply that demand, that's been the key driver of air and ocean markets, you could argue, since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's zoom in a little on that Transpac trade lane for a second and hear from one company that can give us some insight on both ends. Brian Borg. Chief Growth Officer at Seco Logistics. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, we've just heard in China that there are various supply chain and port bottlenecks. There's been localized COVID lockdowns. We're also seeing question marks over production lines in China due to these electricity outages we've had. Seco has a sizable footprint in the Far East. Can you tell me if these are factors in your forward planning particularly in terms of your Trans-Pacific business by ocean and air? Uh, absolutely. They are a big factor. And uh, ultimately, they've been a big factor since really January of 2020. We don't expect much to change next year other than, you know, there's bound to be more surprises. So when you have uh, a country like China that has done a very, had a very successful operation in containing COVID-19 with very strict measures, the byproduct of that is these kind of circuit breaker actions that occur could potentially disrupt operations at any time. So it is a, a bit of a give and take. The fact that they've been so successful leads us to believe that any circuit breaker actions to mitigate against COVID won't be as disruptive as what happened in Vietnam, for example, where, you know, you just had the country shut down for three months or what happened with China very early days. But, you know, that is one area that we prepare for the worst, but we hope for the best. That combined with the electricity issues that you mentioned does create a situation where there will be continued uncertainty, volatility, ambiguity, all of the phrases that we've all become accustomed to over these past, you know, 18 months or so. I mean, what, essentially the, the reduction in electricity is, is a demand or sorry, a supply shock. So, you know, we've had both supply and demand shocks over the past almost two years. This supply shock essentially depresses demand for transportation and it kind of extends it outwards and literally kind of flattens the curve a bit. So there's going to take a while to unravel that and un unclog that pent up demand. And that could take us not only to obviously the, the Lunar New Year or Chinese New Year, but we're also looking a lot towards the Olympics and the Olympics could potentially have as much as, or even greater impact to supply chain and logistics than these kind of rolling blackouts that we're seeing, because it will be much more acute. So in, in summary, it's, it's an issue. We've gotten much better at kind of mitigating against these, these impacts, but we do expect more of this throughout probably until next summer and maybe even until kind of Q3. And that's when we hope really electricity situation to be back to normal. And uh, we would see potentially even opening up of some travel restrictions, which can alleviate a lot of pressures, not only with just uh, international travel, but, but even travel within China, right? There's a bit of huge impact to labor uh, when people are, are unable to kind of go from their own uh, province to, to work. And especially with truckers, it's been such a challenge. Brian, you mentioned the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics, which fall in February this year. Same month in China, we also have Chinese New Year holidays start. We're going to see an early spike in demand ahead of Chinese New Year. Or what, what does that do to your 
supply chain demand? Yeah, I think these are dates that everyone should keep in mind. I do suspect that there will be an increase in demand and, and bookings. So traditionally, if, if you look at, okay, you know, February 1st and the holidays going until this February 6th is kind of your, you know, Lunar New Year um, holiday to take into consideration. I think really what people should take into consideration is from February 1st all the way till February 20th, when the Beijing Olympics should be winding down. Those dates should actually be the ones that people have on the calendar and recognizing the fact that there could be even further electricity limits during that time. It's not that the country necessarily would shut down for that entire time, but I think we can, we can fully expect a, a bit more friction, some more restrictions. And I think a lot of companies will be looking to pull forward uh, as much uh, inventory and, and POs as they can in advance. So we might have certainly something of an abnormal spike, but you know, with the past 18 months to two years, we'll see how the future really plays out. But that's how we're advising our clients is take note of all of those dates, not just the Chinese New Year. Lovely. Uh, just zooming to the other end of that trans-Pacific supply chain, just briefly, what's the situation in North America right now? We've, we know about the vessel queues at various ports, but we're coming up to Christmas. Where are you seeing the most strain on the U.S. logistics system? Well, the strain's everywhere and uh, it affects all modes. And we used to advise our clients that they're the one mode that wasn't really impacted was domestic air freight. Once flights started to return back to the skies, you know, around, let's say April, May timeframe of last year, the capacity was always coming back into the market faster than demand. Well, that's no longer the case. Even domestic air freight is being impacted. So the situation is bad across all modes, but there are some green shoots. We're starting to see some signs of, of life that where the light at the end of the tunnel is, it could have been an oncoming train, but in many respects, we're starting to see evidence that it actually is indeed sunlight coming through. Uh, we're seeing the situation improve in inland ports and ramps, rail ramps, uh, such as Chicago and Memphis. So we're seeing a lot of the efforts there to alleviate the, uh, the congestion really starting to work which is certainly helping all, you know, all flow, freight flows that are coming into the United States. We fully expect uh, there to be uh, a lot of issues on the, on the courier and express side and parcel. And so we're already seeing indications that this is uh, worsening, but this is kind of typical. It's it, the shipageddon, as people say, has been happening uh, for a few years. And this was even pre-pandemic where there was just uh, a lot more uh, demand and there was capacity last year was certainly a challenge this year we expect more of the same and when it comes to things like domestic ground trucking these are all very we'll, we'll call them expensive and congested modes across the board especially uh, coming from places like the west coast some other green shoots that we're seeing the number of vessels off the port of la long beach uh, that number uh, of container ships at, uh, at anchor, simply idle or loitering is going down, but we're seeing movement in the right direction. And, you know, that creates an opportunity where it's not just, you know, LA Long Beach, uh, the congestion is improving across the board because we have to remember congestion is everywhere. It's not just in Shanghai, Port of Shanghai or, or Port of LA Long Beach. It's actually in Seattle, Tacoma, it's in Savannah, it's in Oakland. 
uh, you know, you name the port, it probably has a delay of at least a day or two, and if not much longer. So we're starting to see the bookings go down, which is another kind of green shoot that, you know, this accelerated demand, the pressure that's being brought upon to the entire supply chain, that pressure is alleviating a bit, which is good. That all sounds very positive in terms of those choke points. If we're looking through to next year on that Trans-Pacific trade, bearing in mind some of those points that you made, what are your customers telling you about their import needs or their inventory levels? Yeah, so across the board, inventory levels have been low and going lower and lower until very recently that I think you guys have, have covered, which that is another sign, I think, of the health of the supply chain kind of returning when the inventory to sales ratio starts to tick back up again, where companies have enough stock or building enough stock to support and meet demand for their goods. So there, there, there's some improvement there. We still see, and, and this is not really spoken about as much, but we still see from our clients congestion all the way upstream. So at the manufacturing level, at the raw materials level, and this similar to the electricity shortages in China is actually another supply shock, which is only kind of pushing out uh, the demand for transportation further and further out, which is one of the many reasons why we don't expect this, that the congestion to be alleviated anytime soon, because there are a lot of things that are very much booked out in advance. Some clients we have, if they initiated a purchase order today, it would not be fulfilled until the year 2023. So there's a lot of, I, I think, still congestion. And maybe when things clear up through next year, all of a sudden those lead times may begin to shrink as maybe some purchase orders are, are canceled. But, but it's going to take all year uh, uh, really to, to work through this uh, and potentially going into 2023. So we do see that clients are more optimistic about their chances of, of really bringing inventory in. But th there's a lot of companies still playing catch up, especially if you're manufacturing everything in Vietnam. Those organizations, those clients, they have, they have a, a bit of a ways to go to catch up. But for the most part, we're, we're seeing more, more positive outlooks on next year. How does that play out in the freight markets? We've already seen some softening on the ocean spot rates. Based on what you just said, it, you're, you're still planning on markets being quite tight. Maybe you're looking at, are you looking at long-term contracts with container lines or are you suggesting that to your clients or maybe securing charters for air? How, how tight are things going to be? And a secondary question, maybe you guys, are, most logistics companies have been doing quite well this year. Maybe you guys have some more acquisitions on the horizon because uh, as you are the chief growth officer, presumably you would be the right person to ask. <laughs> yeah, certainly growth for us is both through organic means as well as through acquisitive means. And that's, that's been a shift in our strategy. That's something we've done much of in our 45-year history, but we've changed that in the past five years. And most recently, with our largest acquisition to date of Bansard, a global freight forwarder in 17 countries headquartered um, just outside of Paris. And certainly a watershed moment for our company, but it, it is a sign that since our shift to become more acquisitive, that is going to continue and, and the deals will, you know, get larger as you've seen from the succession of our deals up until now. So there will be more of that, but when it comes to, you know, how we uh, procure and how we service our clients, there's 
the, the, the one thing I can, I can probably guarantee is that, you know, we will do new things next year and we will have surprises next year that uh, we weren't expecting. Uh, that's what we've learned over the past two years. But ultimately it's made, I think us and, and really a lot of people in this space much better, smarter, faster, at, at, and, and more nimble because you've essentially had to. It's almost like we've, we've all been training for a marathon and running 15 miles every weekend. So it's been two years now, so we're all, we're all rather fit and can weather the storm, so to speak, maybe a little bit easier than we could at, at the very beginning. But when it comes to things like air freight, that is one area where it will get worse before it gets better. So there, there's still a bit of that. And the reason why is that even as travel restrictions are lifted and Mike, you know, I just flew to London and back and transatlantic is looking good. Airlines are reintroducing, you know, their planes and their wide bodies back on these routes, but they're not doing it immediately. That takes time to really ramp up. And a lot of these schedules aren't really going to really blow up until the summer season. So in the interim, while a lot of people are, are looking to get back to the U.S. or travel to Europe, a lot of that belly space is going to be taken by luggage. So the relative capacity, despite the fact that borders are opening up, is actually going to go down. And we could see that same cycle happen on every kind of trade lane as countries and markets open up. So that creates additional volatility that people need to take into consideration. And then when you look at it from an ocean perspective, the demand for transportation due to both supply and demand shocks could potentially extend out for quite a while. And the one saving grace, because we're not going to see a lot of big new ships next year. The order books don't really tell you that that's going to happen a lot next year. That may be more kind of 23, 24. So capacity is not going to increase. Demand is going to continue from everything that we're seeing in, as you said, inventory and sales ratio, although going up, still very low. Demand for goods, still very strong. And companies are, are, are still, you know, playing catch up in a lot of ways. So the market dynamics are, are, are at least still volatile and, and not anywhere close to ideal. In business, we always like stability and certainty. We're not going to get much of those next year, but again, movement in the right direction is what um, I, is probably going to be the theme for 2022, whereas this year was was more like Godfather the sequel, where you thought Godfather was great. Well, wait till you see Godfather 2, right? So next year, I think we're, we're going to see the movement in the right direction, but it's still going to be from uh, an unenviable place of increased ambiguity, complexity, uncertainty, and doubt. Well, let's just hope it doesn't get as bad as Godfather 3, because that was an awful movie. Brian Bork, <laughs> thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Kathy, Brian thinks that inventory sales ratio, even if it is going up, it's still very low and demand is still very strong. Is, is that how you view that particular metric? Are you expecting more volatility next year as well? Yes, definitely. I think with the latest inventory to sales ratio, we saw there was beginning to be a buildup in that retail wholesale, well, the wholesale merchant sector which is that inventory that's needed for stores. Uh, but at the same time, the overall retailer's inventory to sell ratio is still low because the sales are outstripping the inventory. Inventories aren't getting to the shelves or virtual shelves fast enough for many of these retailers. And we're going to see that continue until, who knows, to be honest with you, my bet 
is really not until 2023. I am a pessimist, but uh, an optimistic pessimist. How about that? That's a great quality to have, Kathy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I honestly don't see this improving. The transcripts that I've read so far, all of them are saying that they expect it to see improvement by the first half of next year. Well, the same retailers said that last year saying we will see improvements on the back half of 2020. We haven't. It's gotten worse. And I have a feeling it probably will get even worse next year. I think you could well be right. Let's just, just for some of our listeners who might be aware of exactly how congested some of these elements of, of the supply chain are, I guess there's a couple of things here. We're in the last chance saloon for many businesses looking to make those last minute profits as we talk in late November. It's probably already past that point where people can get stuff in the shops for the holiday season, unless it's already in warehouses. But you look at a lot of different elements of this. Like, what is that situation on the the last mile on reverse logistics, warehousing logistics? How is the U.S. Inc. supply chain coping right now? I think right now, everything is running okay. Now, Prologis and several of the other commercial property management firms that have reported earnings have come out and said that there's no space in the warehouses. And, and they're right. There, there's not. I mean, all this inventory that keeps coming in, is, I mean, it's going out pretty fast, but it's all coming in so quickly and it needs that storage. But from a last mile perspective, right now, everything is running okay. The real test is going to be between the Thanksgiving holiday and Christmas. Those couple of uh, two to three weeks, that's going to be the main test. And um, honestly, I think it's going to be okay this year. Both UPS and FedEx have built out quite a bit of capacity. Amazon has as well. A lot of the regional small parcel providers are out there, and they're carrying a lot more. And the post office has also said that they're ready also. But the problem is, as we all know, UPS and FedEx have been looking more at the profits than the volume. So they're they're cherry picking the more profitable customers. And which means those are going to be going to the post office, the small regional carriers and such. So we'll see in a couple of weeks how things are going. If there's not much warehouse space, what does that mean for reverse logistics demand? Uh, I guess after the holiday season when maybe a lot of people will be sending their e-commerce ordered products back, does that complicate things and add more pressure onto that that logistic system or storage system? It does. It does. Um, it just means less space to do that disposition, which is that inspection, repair, repackage, or what needs to be done to that particular item. So retailers are going to have to be very creative in this. They may end up telling customers just to keep the items instead of sending them back. So it's going to be a tough situation. And I, and I say that next year, it's going to be the year of reverse logistics. That's when people are going to really realize the importance of getting a handle on, on returns and such. Logistics blockages that have built up over the last 18 months or so, they spread right up and down that supply chain. Now, just looking at the West Coast, I mean, let's hope there's no more surprises out there. There's debate about whether the new charges for collecting containers will actually be implemented. But we've also got 
uh, the Longshore Unions are negotiating with employers over a new labor contract. I guess a strike is probably not what anyone needs right now. No, definitely not. But, you know, not only with the ports, but also with our friends at UPS as well. Got a new president of the Teamsters, and he's not exactly the most friendly towards UPS. <laughs> that contract is coming up in uh, 2023. You know, that may seem a long ways off, but the negotiations, I'm sure they've already started, or at least they've scheduled time to, to start this. Um, very much opposed to this to the weekend deliveries and using part-timers and the personal vehicle drivers, these gig workers that UPS is using more and more of as well. So there's going to be a lot of discussion around that. Also, what to do with Roadie. Roadie was a recent acquisition that UPS made, and it is a, a last-mile provider. It's a technology platform that utilizes gig workers, and they're keeping it separate as a separate subsidiary, separate from its own network. However, it would be very smart of them to integrate, but they can't, primarily because of the union. Well, that's something to keep an eye on over the next few months. Um, on a positive note, those backlogs off LA Long Beach, as, as Brian was saying earlier, they've subsided slightly, but there's still a lot of ships tied up. But until that bottleneck is removed, it's very difficult for container lines to get schedules back on track. But it's not just in the US and Asia that ports have been struggling to cope throughout all of this. Right across Europe, we've had a year of terminals packed with empties and hinterland networks struggling to cope. Let me bring in here Hans Nuchtegal, Director of Containers at the Port of Rotterdam. Hello, Hans. Did I pronounce your name right? I suspect not. Uh, that's perfect, Mike. That's very good. <laughs> uh, almost Dutch. and uh, Very glad to be here. Thank you very much. I suspect your tongue is firmly in your cheek when you say that, but thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, Hans, so we've been talking about congestion and, and some of the, the logistics issues that we're facing and seeing around the globe. Well, there's a number of ports in Europe who are struggling with container congestion at the moment. Rotterdam is the biggest container port on the continent. So what's the situation there right now? Well, well, well let me start by, by saying that we are pleased to see that the volumes have returns uh, after the, the, the COVID dip. So we are now on the pre-COVID levels. Uh, we saw that the, the growth in the first uh, nine months is about 7.8% in TU and 4% in TON. Uh, and on the, on the Asia trades, uh, where we have about 75% of our volumes coming from, we grew by about 9.8%. Uh, so overall, we, we're doing quite well and we are, we are fine with it. However, as you correctly say, as the biggest ports in Europe, we are confronted with the challenges in the supply chain as well, uh, obviously. And these challenges are caused by a number of factors and, and triggered by various disruptions. And the main one being COVID, obviously, which has triggered uh, shifts in productions and shift in buying patterns, but also a lack of workers in ports of even closing of ports. And basically that has all triggered a whole disruption in the supply chain. And as being a, a big part of that, it is also uh, affecting us. So I mean, Rotterdam as, and, and many ports in Europe, as you said, we see that we have these changes caused by the terminal uh, in, on the terminal and the challenges we have on the terminal, which basically also ripple down to the hinterlands. And we had also see our effect there. So on your initial question, how we are doing, 
I think we are very pleased to see that the volumes are there, that we are handling the volumes. We are also pleased to see that we don't have a lot of backlog of vessels waiting for the port, but we do see that we have challenges on, on handling all the, all the cargo on that. When you say there's challenges, what exactly are those challenges and how are you trying to overcome them? Is this down to the vessels arriving a bit late or is it, is you mentioned capacity inland, are you running out of storage? Have you got too many boxes on, on those terminals? I find that quite a difficult question to, to answer in a, in a few sentences, because basically what I see is that the whole supply chain gears are all affecting each other. So, uh, yes. We see that there is a shift in, for instance, empty containers. We, we hear from certain part of the world that there is uh, a lack of empty containers. Well, I, I, I don't see a lack of empty containers in, in our port. We basically have too many empty containers, which is causing a, a problem. So the whole supply chain has changed to such an extent that you see that there is shifts of the pattern. And so, for instance, when I give you the example of empty containers, you know, I, I could not wait that all these empty containers are, are being shipped from our port because basically that is uh, hindering uh, the productivity. So in answer to your question, basically what we see is that it started on the terminal, where on the terminal, on the seaside, we see a disruption of the carriers and the schedule reliability. And that caused that containers are staying longer at the terminal, so you see that the dwell time of containers are longer, and that's because of the unpredictability of the schedules of the, of, the, of the vessels. And because of that, terminals are taking measures. For instance, say, okay, because we have too many boxes already standing on our yard, some of the terminals are saying, well, we are stopping the influx of empties. So then they are now being stored at the empty depots which are now getting much more cargo than they had prior. So now the empty depots are having a large stock. Now we see that being transferred into the hinterland, where you see hinterland terminals also getting more blocked with more containers. So the challenges basically are starting from the terminals and now rippling down to the hinterland. And obviously that is creating a whole supply chain challenge and I said in an earlier interview that basically the wheels of the supply chain are the sand being thrown in and we need oil to get it loose. And basically this oil is the schedule reliability. Yeah, the vessels need to come into order. For our listeners out there, the, the first question I'm sure is coming to their mind is when there's a shortage of empty containers in Asia, why have you got an excess of empty containers there? Why don't the carriers just pick them up and take them back to Asia? It's just a good question. And, and basically what you see is that there is in certain ports, because of the challenges they have, empties cannot be shipped. They have a short window in which the vessel needs to be handled. And there is not enough time to also load the empties in certain ports. What you therefore see is that uh, some of the carriers are transferring these boxes, the empty boxes first to Rotterdam in order to uh, ship them further back to Asia again. And there you see that it is a challenge to get everything loaded in time because also in Rotterdam, for instance, you need this window in which you need to, to handle the, the vessel. And then we have to take into consideration that because of the higher utilization 
of the terminal itself, the productivity is also going down. So the number of boxes in total, which a terminal can handle, and I'm, I'm of course making general statements here, but the number of boxes which terminal can handle and therefore how fast they can handle the ship is going down. And that has an effect on the, the number of uh, empty boxes they can ship as well. What are you doing at Rotterdam about all of this? Yeah, basically we have four pillars which we are working on. And obviously our goal is to have an, uh, such an efficient port and to uh, have an excellent internet connection. First of all, we are investing in extra capacity. So we are building uh, new key walls for the terminals. So there will be a new capacity available as well as we are extending our container exchange route, which is connecting all the terminals uh, together, which basically means that we'll create about 4 million additional TMU of capacity, which is uh, additional 25% of infrastructure capacity. We are investing in port call optimization. We have a system called port exchange. This basically uh, helps the vessel call to speed up, make sure that we get inefficiencies out of the system so that the vessel call will reduce, therefore giving the example which I just gave with the uh, empties. We will also be able to load more containers. We are optimizing the hinterland calls. We have seen certain number of initiatives where the hinterland barges are basically bundling their capacity so that they make one big call in Rotterdam instead of separate smaller calls. This will have an efficiency, but also we have a barge planning tool like NextLogic, which will uh, allow for an even more efficient handling of the barge activities. And as last point, we are uh, optimizing the supply chain by data sharing. Uh, examples I can give is the port-based, the port community system, root scanner, and, and scope, which is all allowing for a more efficient uh, flow of cargo. Do you think people are maybe questioning the attractiveness of these large 20,000 TEU plus vessels, which obviously have got less port that they can call at mm. and reduces the flexibility of those schedules? I think... Shipping has always been driven by cost and just in time. And I agree with you that that is something where people will question if the dependency on that is, if the balance is there. However, I don't feel that it will have make a 180 on that one. I think that certain companies will think, well, maybe I should do some near storing or have some more stock uh, than normal. And these are all the things which basically were cut out. If you do just in time, you basically want to avoid all the stocks and all the extra costs on that one. I, I think people will rethink of that completely out. I don't think so because once, once uh, these big vessels will be there, they will be a cost competitive option. Maybe not now, but in the future, they will definitely continue to be a cost competitive option. And then people will go back and say, okay, how can I, you know, get my most attractive uh, cost price? So I, I still believe that cost will remain a, a very big decision factor, which people will take into consideration.
Time will tell. Hans, thank you so much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. It's really appreciated. Much appreciated, Mike, and uh, I hope to see you soon. Sam, just swinging back to Asia, it's not just the east-west trades that are being impacted by port congestion, is it? Yeah, we're definitely seeing a cascading effect onto the intra-Asia trade lanes, um, especially Singapore is a bit of a victim at the moment. There's a lot of transshipment cargo coming in, but because of the schedules are so out of whack because of the port congestion in the US and Europe, there's not that many vessels coming in on time to pick up the cargo. So they have a lot of cargo being sat on the terminals in Singapore. So much so they have to open their new Tuas mega container terminal early just to sort of cope with the overflow of containers. So yeah, there's definitely a knock-on effect into Asia. Excellent. Sam, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Mine, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Kathy, it has been great to catch you up before Christmas. Let me just say a belated happy Thanksgiving day to everyone in, over in the States. Kathy, lovely to chat as always. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me. We've been talking about supply chain disruption, pricing, congestion, how it's impacting bottom lines what we might or might not be able to buy each other for Christmas. But as we put this episode to bed, there is a range of new travel restrictions coming into place in response to the Omicron variant. Now, of course, all of this is very annoying if you're in the travel industry, if you're a business traveler, a holiday maker. But it's very easy to forget how this will affect the people on which most international trade relies. And that's the seafarers on board the global merchant fleet. I'd like to introduce now someone that many of you will know. Until earlier this year, he was the group CEO of, of Ship Manager, the Wallum Group. He's currently a strategic advisor to Kariwa Maritime. And over his long and distinguished career in shipping, he has been a constant and outspoken advocate for seafarer rights. Hello, Frank Coles. Good uh, morning or afternoon, depending on where you are, I guess. <laughs> Frank, throughout this pandemic, hundreds of thousands of seafarers have been caught up in a humanitarian crisis, which has left so many stranded at sea and unable to return home for very long periods, up to a year or over in some cases. What does this new variant of COVID-19 mean for them and their ability to get back to their families anytime soon? I think it is a disaster. I think it just makes it much more complicated. You've seen the knee-jerk reactions of the governments already, and to put that on top of the current restrictions that are in place for seafarers is just going to make it even worse. You've got Chinese seafarers being forced to do seven weeks quarantine when they go home. You've got cruise ship uh, crew not allowed shore leave, even though they're mixing with thousands of passengers every week. So introducing yet a new variant, which is supposedly a super sprinter, is going to make things for the seafarer much more complex and much more complicated. What do you, as someone who's been shouting from every possible platform you could do right throughout of this, this crew change crisis, what firstly do you think should be done to address this so it is easier for, for seafarers to travel home? And, and given how little so few governments did during the height of the crew change crisis in 2020, what do you think will actually be done? So let's take the last question first. Nothing will get done, as usual. I think it's going to take a, some sort of disaster for anything to move. Uh, what should be done? Well, I'd advocated, along with, with others, I would say, 
that there needs to be recognition of the role that seafarers play in world supply chains in all of this. Everyone claps for nurses, but do they clap for seafarers? And uh, what I think should be done is creating some form of green channel where vaccinated seafarers get to get on and off their ships in a, in a timely manner. And countries realize that it's, it's quite easy to take them from the ship to the airport and onto airplanes without all of the ridiculous regulations that get put in. So the largest problem is inconsistency. The Green Channel, I ran a, 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 a petition. I got over 13,000 signatures on it. I got the British government to reply to me. I've even said, only a strike will make a difference. And then people think I'm a complete disruptor at that point. But it's, it's a desperate situation. I mean, a strike wouldn't necessarily be out of the question. Earlier in this podcast, we heard there's ongoing discussions between longshoremen and, and the ports in the Pacific in the US. So that a st strike action there has happened many times in the past. But when we talk about seafarers, it seems to be a different matter. And there's another other thing I wanted to ask you. It's not just about the ability to travel, is it? Sometimes it's the recognition of the vaccines. It's a patchwork of regulations at the moment. One country doesn't sometimes recognize a, a vaccine, even if it's produced in the same country, if it was administered in another country. And there's a sort of a, a diplomatic breakdown in terms of recognition of vaccines, which have of course, affects seafarers every time they try shore leave or try to travel. I couldn't agree with you more. Unfortunately, the, the whole pandemic has turned into political football and, and humans are at the bottom of the pile and seafarers are at the, at the bottom of that pile. But taking the pandemic aside, what's, what's also gone on is a denial of medical treatment because you don't want people to come ashore. You know, I've read stories of, of a dead master being kept in the freezer for six months because countries wouldn't take him. It's horrific the way we run stories in the big international media about how many container ships there are off the coast of LA, but they forget that every one of those ships has 20 or so people who are now being forced to drift 150 miles offshore. So it becomes out of sight, out of mind, and all too often that over the years has been the treatment of seafarers, out of sight and out of mind. The underbelly of world trade, I suppose. Yeah. Frank Coles, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Appreciate that. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Forto, for supporting this episode. An additional shout to the Baltic Exchange for giving us exclusive access to their fantastic range of regulated indices. And a big thanks also to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon.